Hey, I'm Amar Chohan. And I'm Charlotte Williams. Thanks for tuning in to Love, Hate, Create, our podcast about the world of modern advertising. We speak with the smartest people from the industry to find out whether we should be outraged or optimistic about where things are heading. Hello, and welcome back to our first recording of 2024. Um, And what a way to kick it off with award-winning, Academy Award-winning, no less, um, manager and producer, Michael Sugar. So Michael founded Sugar23 in 2017, which is a multimedia production and talent management organisation with a mission to impact culture through entertainment. He's got first-class, world-class entertainment executives in scripted and unscripted TV, film, books and podcasts. And Sugar23 creates original premium content for global distribution platforms. And increasingly, this involves working with brand marketers, leveraging the company's resources for brands to participate in entertainment, um, earning higher audience engagement and financial return, which is, of course, the holy grail. The company works with leading brands around the branded entertainment uh, projects and opportunities, including AB InBev, Time Inc., Procter & Gamble and others. And CEO Michael Sugar has shepherded award-winning projects such as Spotlight, Brilliant, The Nick, The OA, Maniac, 13 Reasons Why, and I Am The Night. Sugar 23 currently has the turning point airing on on MSNBC, which was co-produced alongside Time Studios, Trevor Noah's Day Zero Productions, Mainstay, and P&G Studios. And they have offices in Los Angeles, Nashville, New York, and Washington, D.C. So welcome. Thank you for that. Michael. Wow. Happy New Year. <laughs> welcome. Great to have you. So wonderful in your accent. <laughs> Thank you. The Michael Buffer of introductions on podcasts is, is Charlotte. So an, an Oscar winner we've got um, in yourself, Michael. And you're also on the, the voting panel, right? So before we get into Love, Hate, Create, I'm... I'm so eager to know what's the the best recent tv show or movie that you've seen that um you think that we should all go out and and see i mean i think well first of all i have a seven-year-old and so the most recent movie i've seen 20 times is elf um obsessed with coming out of the holidays uh you know, I'm so excited that even with the strikes we had in 23, there's so many great films that have broken through. And, you know, obviously we spent a lot of time focused on Barbie uh, in the last year because of the, you know, convergence it represented between entertainment and, and Hollywood. So for me, that's the best picture of the year because uh, it really cemented uh, our belief that there is a, a, an opportunity that hasn't yet really been uh, mind and uh, I don't know that it is the best picture of the year from an Oscar point of view. Although it's interesting because you know we debate what is the best picture of the year. Is it an accomplishment in filmmaking or is it an accomplishment in film industry? Right, and I would argue that you know what what Oppenheimer did and what Marty did with Killers of the Flower Moon and and other films, Yorgos's film. They're all extraordinary films and all and and, and well deserving, um, but I don't think any have will be viewed historically as more transformative for the entertainment industry than Barbie, um, and uh, I, I don't think that I don't know that Hollywood views it that way yet, um, but I believe it will in hindsight. 
it's definitely laid down some strong foundations, hasn't it? I mean, it's blown up. So let let's move on then. Let's let's get to the premise of this podcast, which is of course what you love, what you hate, and the change that you would create about our industry. And I'm talking broadly because I know your industry sort of does it does intersect with so many others, Hollywood, Madison Avenue, etc. So we'd love to get your hot take on on Barbie and other things. But first up, what is it that you really love about brands, entertainment, what we're doing? Well, I love entertainment. I mean, I love entertainment because I believe you can move culture and humans through the emotions that you can deliver in entertainment, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, deeply meaningful, uh, moving drama or just a broad comedy, which takes people away from life, which is, uh, the life stresses, which we've all experienced even more in the last, you know, four or five years where we've where it's been existential for everyone. Um, uh, what I love about the brands is the promise, certainly not the experience so far um, uh, in, in many cases, because I think that uh, the brands are challenged with historic legacy processes, which are kind of built to slow innovation, which is their stated desire. So the friction that I observe in the organization uh, operations within um, brands is is what I hate. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead, but what I love is that the the space that exists for that innovation is so big. You know, it's like the internet or AI for brands, right? Like the opportunity for brands who are the biggest spenders in the entertainment business, no doubt, right? You have individual brands that spend more on production and media than individual streamers do for their original content across the entire year. And that's just individual brands. And brands, we talk about brands and we think about Fortune 500 brands, but there's thousands of brands that spend substantial capital trying to connect audiences. So what I love is the opportunity that I see. Um, and I also love that that opportunity includes a new relationship that can be forged with Hollywood and, and its talent. Um, so, and I love a new challenge, right? I've, I've been blessed that I've, I've been able to do work that has gone all the way in some form, either commercially or critically or both. And, um, and I've, you know, I've been blessed that I've been able to do great work as a, as a talent representative and build companies. Um, this is to me like a, a, a brave new world that I'm trying to navigate. It's amazing. Uh, when you frame it like that, right? Individual brands spending just as much on production and, and media. I think you said it was as, as the streaming platforms do uh, in, in your capacity as CEO of Sugar23 and what you guys are trying to achieve, is there still a, a lot of education that's required when you're talking to brands around the opportunity, that white space that you mentioned? It's a massive headwind because of the amount of unlearning that we need to convince the brand they need to do. Um, and so there, I, for me, there's a lot of learning too, right? Of course, because I'm learning new language and I'm learning new people. I mean, in Hollywood, just as an example, and you'll get this because you understand the brand world as well as you do, 
if I had a movie script that I needed to get financed for a studio at a studio level budget, I could make 10 phone calls and cover the entire entertainment industry. Right. If I want to get to a CMO of a, of a global brand, I got to make 10 phone calls just to get to someone 20 levels below that CMO. Right. So there's thousands of, of people. Uh, that I need to to know to have a real foothold in in that industry. So, uh, you know, for me, there's a lot of learning and 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 learning sort of what moves the needle and how. And I've learned a ton in the last year. For the brands, what I'm trying to challenge them to do is to learn to believe their own instincts, right? Because ultimately, you've got these. You've got these visionary CMOs. We've met many of them, and they inspire me. Um, who who believe what I'm screaming, and and others. To be clear, that I didn't invent anything here. Um, that the best way to connect to an audience in this moment in time, when people pay to skip commercials, is to reach them where their hearts are, not where their you know just where their eyes are. And that's entertainment. And, and, and so they believe it, but then they have to understand that that doesn't happen in a quarter or in two quarters, right? The, the things that they pay millions of dollars to advertise against take sometimes a year or two or three. I mean, even the Super Bowl takes 18 weeks plus the playoffs. That's the season of television that delivers the Super Bowl. They understand that because it exists. So when you have these marketers who have, you know, massive, massive oversight in their, you know, KPIs, they've got to deliver on a quarter by quarter basis. They have limited and 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 increasingly limited resources, which they have to allocate to a return. That is that is a friction point to entertainment. So it's first convincing those that haven't been convinced that entertainment is possible and worthy for them. And I'm seeing a massive groundswell of that adoption. Then if they buy that, it's teaching them that you got to slow the roll to make it great. Right. And, and, and so that is a challenge that, you know, I'm, I'm finding regularly and trying to bring in stakeholders that are not simply marketers, but, you know, we have conversations now with chief financial officers, with, with chief revenue officers, with CEOs of these corporations. And those are really inspiring because they really get it just like the marketers do. But then if the CEO is buying in, then the marketer gets more space to take the time to do this. So, and then it's like learning the entertainment business, because I'm also trying to build businesses for brands. I mean, ultimately, like you said at the beginning, Charlotte, well, what we're trying to do is not just make entertainment for brands. We're trying to create business verticals inside of brands. There's a reason why movie studios and television studios make billions of dollars. There's, there's no reason why a brand can't, right, on entertainment. So we have to teach them the entertainment business and the intricacies of those economics. And it's, it's a lot, but, but they want to learn. I mean, that's the good news. We're not, we're not screaming at a wall. People are engaged with us and, and we're doing things. So I'm excited about it.
and to your point, right, 2023 with the explosion of Barbie, I would imagine that that's changed a lot of hearts and minds and you've got more businesses willing to to talk to you about this. Because, of course, you know, what, what I've read about in your bios, you're creating them financial returns, not only for the entertainment itself, but also, of course, I'm sure you're like massively selling products, right? S- selling Barbie dolls, whatever it might be. It's it, it's It's huge. Yeah. Beyond the the entertainment return. Yeah. I mean that look, ultimately, I'm not gonna convince a brand to make a movie or a TV show or a podcast or a book if it's not gonna drive mm. sales of their product. Exactly. Yeah. Uh so that's a given. It has to create, but it doesn't have to do it the way it always used to, right? It doesn't you know, you don't have to have a character drinking a Coca-Cola for Coca-Cola to benefit from its association with the content, right? It used to be placement, right? That, and it still is placement to some degree. What my view is, is if, if as long as the audience sees something they love, number one, they love it. Two, they know it's from a brand. So they, so the brand gets proper attribution. I don't think the content has to be that adjacent to the brand itself at all. Right. And this is a big buy in and some are buying it and some are not. I remember being in a CMO's office early on and, uh, that CMO, it was a, a sponsor of NASCAR that that brand was a NASCAR sponsor. And they were, were saying to me when I said to them, I don't think your product has to be in, in the show at all. And, and they said, well, that doesn't make sense. We're a brand, we're market. And I said, I walked over on the wall, there was a hood of a race car with the brand logo on it. And, and they said, uh, I said, you know, who drove this car? And they said the name of the driver. And I said, well, did you tell the driver how to drive it? Did you tell the driver which oil did the driver consume your product while driving the car? No, it's just at the front of the hood or your name is on a stadium, Verizon, Mercedes, crypto.com. They're not telling the teams what plays to run and the teams aren't using their products in their content, right? During the game, what those brands are doing and have been doing it for decades is authoring the relationship between that content and the consumer. And, and so any Lakers fan thinks about crypto.com when they walk into that arena, even though LeBron James is not trading crypto during a game. And, and it is more likely that a Lakers fan who is going to get into crypto is going to go to crypto.com. That's the reason they spent $700 million to put their name on it. You know, and when there's a concert, they're not doing the set list for Lizzo when she's performing at crypto.com. They're just bringing the relationship to the end user. So why does that not exist in television and film? It should, right? Cause that real estate that lives in front of premium entertainment is quite valuable, right? Like how much would Marvel charge for a non-Marvel movie to put Marvel's logo in front of it? They wouldn't, it's priceless because the, that space is valuable and that logo is valuable. So are the golden arches. McDonald's logo is valuable. And if it is placed in front of stranger things, even if the cast of Stranger Things isn't eating a Big Mac during the show, the audiences will love McDonald's. Loyalty, 
That's the thing we talk about a lot with brands because we used to measure Q scores, right? We used to measure, do people recognize the logo? It doesn't matter as much as it used to, right? What matters so much more now is relevance. And there's no measurement to relevance because relevance is cultural. You can't measure it. It's something that you, you look at when it happened, not as it's happening and you can't create it. So the way, or you can create it a bit, the way you create it is by, by connecting with your audience the way they want to be connected with something they choose to engage with which is entertainment yeah you don't need to f force the issue right and put the product right in front of their eyes they know that the associations there the, the lebron uh example is, is is such a great one i love it and and the the pushback that you're getting i suppose or the the, the need to like convince some cmos maybe not others that this is possible and it's so obvious when you describe it that way as well. Is that some of the the hate that you were mentioning, the friction? Or are you talking about like on a practical level? Tell us about well, that. Well, it's all mind numbing. Anyone who works with brands or inside of a brand knows that this whole thing is quite mind numbing. Um, I think, you know, I'll give you a real world example. I get an email from a CMO that I'm desperate to meet. Desperate. But one of the top 10. And the CMO reaches out to me, which was like, that was a big day for me, right? Because I nobody in the brand world knew who I was 12 months ago. And he said, I read this article you wrote and I, and I really want to meet because I think what you're doing could be right for us. I mean, I was popping champagne. This was inbound from one of the biggest advertisers in the world. This was like just after our Thanksgiving holiday here in the US. So end of November. I wrote back immediately, of course, I, and I said, this is the best email I may have ever received. I'm so excited. I, I'm desperate to meet you too. You tell me when I'll come to you. We can Zoom, phone call, whatever. He says, I would love it. And the, the, the next day his assistant reaches out. The first avail is May 19th. So it's six months. So the CFO has reached wow. me. And I think, you know, that's a bit of an extreme example, but not really because there, everyone is so booked. There are so many meetings, so many decks, so on the hamster people. wheel, right? And mm. I that because in entertainment, in my business, some things take a long time, but we move quick. We, we, we make deals on the back of a napkin at a bar. This is how Hollywood has run forever, which is, you know, completely foreign. And I have a lawyer. Uh, who works, my general counsel and CEO comes from like traditional, um, you know, law and he watching the entertainment law. He's like, but you don't have a contract. I, there are movies I've made that are in the theaters that I haven't, that didn't sign a contract. Right? <laughs> so amazing. And then the, and, and, you know, and then when you finally do get that meeting and the brand says, yeah, man, let's do this. And I know a lot of people listening will relate. Then you got this thing called procurement. Right. Which is like a whole other thing. And that takes months and months and months and months. And I'm looking at all these opportunities missed for the brand. So there's a lot of things I don't like about it, but again, yeah, I, I could complain, but that's the opportunity too. Right. Like I like, I like those frictions, even though they are exhausting and, and painful because I see that as an opportunity to disrupt and create change. Yeah, find a better way. Find a better, and, and it's interesting. I was talking to a CMO actually the other day and he's very enlightened, very, very into all this, very much about, you know, 
making his brand part of culture and you know he was talking about how brands obviously you know you hear this phrase over and over need to be at the speed of culture whatever that well I think I know what it means but you know <laughs> what it means practically but but yet he was saying these things he'd love to be more doing more things in this space but of course it just takes so long to sign this sort of work off because it's it's big time brand investment isn't it and when you're working quarter to quarter and often a CMO's tenure is what two and a half years they've left by the time you might have set up a meeting with them it's very it's a well, real tension another isn't thing, it right we, we, <laughs> yeah. we were hired by a brand and then the CMO was switched out um I mean it yeah it seems like we'll be good there but ultimately look you you said a couple things there that are worth double clicking on well first is if the CMO that you were taught to wants to do it please tell that CMO to reach out to us uh but I will but um you said two things that I want to double click on. One is being at the speed of culture and the other is the expense. Um, the speed of culture, the brands have two choices. They can attach to things that they think might be at the speed of culture, which is how it's historically been done. You see a sizzle reel at the upfronts and you buy an ad against it and it may or may not be a hit. In some cases, we know it's a hit, so you pay more. Or you can create the speed of culture, right? There is an industry, uh, many industries that have been accidentally impacted by entertainment, right? Look at the chess industry, which was, I believe, over 300% year over year, like industry-wide because of the Queen's Gambit. No company paid for that. But if Mattel had, they could have leveraged that in a massive way, right? Um, yeah. uh, there are, you know, even Sideways, which was a small independent movie, like really moved the Merlot business in the wrong direction for Merlot, right? And we've seen it, you know, historically so many times. I mean, Drive to Survive really changed F1 business, right? So what I'm saying to these brands is you can you can create the things that can move the culture that and, and not do it by accident if it's good enough. Now, my belief is that's probably not gonna come from a brand. It's probably gonna come from the people who make the things that the brands chase. And so we give the opportunity to the brand to get in early and what they're able to do in addition to owning it is that they're also able to impact it. They're able to, a, a CMO once told me recently that everything they advertise against, there's like 15% of that show they wish wasn't there. We can play with that 15% when the brand controls it, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to impact the creative and feel like branded content. Uh, so the second piece was the, the expense. Well, the expense, first of all, is much less than people think, right? Because the reality is any movie or television project is a startup company. And any startup company needs seed capital and those are angel investors and those angel investors in companies that become successful or TV shows or movies that do have the biggest return because they took the first risk. And usually those angel investments are much smaller than the growth investments, which come when the company is more mature. We take a movie idea or a television idea and we go to a brand, they can fund that for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And they are now 
equity participants in that show. They are now creatively involved in that show or movie. They don't have to write the check for $50 million because someone else can. And that's why we are such good partners for these brands because we know how to do that. That's what we've always done. The other thing that I would argue is that the brands need to rethink the relationship between what they refer to as working and non-working dollars, right? There are brands that spend billions of dollars on media and a hundred million dollars on all the production globally that that media activates, right? So a brand will spend $2 million to do a commercial and $40 million to buy eyeballs, $42 million total spent. Well, a brand could spend a few million dollars to develop something, maybe another $10 million to make something. And the eyeballs are paid for by Netflix or Amazon or a premium distributor. They're actually spending less. They just don't think of it that way because marketing budgets and, and media budgets are separate. And in, 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 and what we're seeing more and more, and this is the big unlock, and this is something I love, is that media dollars are swinging into entertainment, not just marketing dollars. And because it is media, right? You're just, you're just flipping the order. Yeah, and people are choosing to watch it rather than being forced to watch it. Correct. So, so you take an episode of premium television, like Anthony Bourdain did, or Chef's Table, right? And you know, more or less at a high at a high level, those episodes cost a million dollars on average an episode. Okay, so we're making ten episodes of Chef's Table, and ten episodes of Chef's Table cost you know in early years, because there's, it gets more expensive in success, which is why, you know, producers can make money. But in the early day, let's say season one of chef's table, more or less, it costs $10 million to make 10 hours of chef's table globally. Now, if American express who cares about fine dining or Stella Artois, who cares about fine dining or other brands that want to be connected to that space. Or by the way, Delta Airlines, who cares about traveling to regions around the world where unique opportunities can come. So if Delta made Anthony Bourdain or Chef's Table or any of those other brands did, they would have spent $10 million. Think of how much that would cost in media to attract all the eyeballs that Chef's Table delivered. Hundreds of millions. So instead of spending hundreds of millions to get a similar return, which you probably couldn't even get because the content wouldn't be as good. Delta or American Express or Stella Artois could have made tens of millions of dollars of profit. Audiences worldwide would love them for giving them the show. You know, that's where I'm going. I'm saying, think about the production and the, and the media as one, not two, and then dive in entertainment and it won't feel as expensive. Yeah, or even just get in at the early level to fund the script, right? You're saying that you can get it funded from other people, which is even less of a risk. Much less. Did I get that right? Much less. And you know what? They may not they may not get the returns that owning the whole thing would, right? Financing because Paramount or Warner Brothers or Apple or some other entity will will take that risk. But they'll still make their money back and some profits 
um, and have some level of brand association if they can negotiate so, it. So when we work with brands, what we do with every project that we sell through, we've now sold probably 25 premium entertainment projects in one year to brands. In every case, we say to them, okay, here's how much is the risk initially. And we model out for them the different ways that they can engage just like an investor in a startup, right? Hey, if you spend more money, you own more equity. If you spend more money, you have more board seats. Well, it's the same with a with a with an entertainment project. You spend more money, you have more ownership, you have more control over the creative. The one thing that we do push back on, and, and I will say something I love, which you would think I hate, is how embracing the brands have been that have worked with us of the notion that they don't have to have creative control over the entertainment. Um... And, and the reason is, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, go on. Because I'm walking into these brands saying, okay, I want you to have creative oversight. We don't want mm. something in our content that's going to negatively impact your brand. We don't want anything in this content that your attribution to it would create controversy or problems. So we're very careful there. But I say to brands, I don't make burgers. You don't make television. So how, but you want to make television. So you teach me when you need this to deliver and I will deliver it. And what I found is the talent have no problem. We have the biggest stars in the world engaged in our brand strategy. I'm talking about literally the biggest athletes, the biggest movie stars. They love this model. They don't want to go do a commercial for a brand. No, no, no actor ever woke up and said, gosh, you know, it would fulfill me if I could do a commercial. That's, that's a money gig. But they have no objection to working with a brand if the brand is letting them do something they love, right? I mean, we saw it with with the show we have on on, you know, that P and G's involved with on MSNBC. We have huge talent involved. Nobody's asking for endorsement money. Everyone's just saying this is a show I want to make. I want to get paid what I get paid to make a show, and so yeah, that's why I'm excited about it. it, it the brands do understand that and that allows the talent to feel comfortable with the brands in a way they never did before and we we have talent involved with brands just as in, i'm talking a lot but i guess it's yeah no it's so interesting i was just thinking about the creator control bit because you know we talked you talked a bit about queen scam but earlier and i was thinking that was such a surprise it always it hit the overused word zeitgeist didn't it during covid and lots but I was thinking about the themes in it, because, of course, alcoholism, addiction, you know, there were some quite dark themes. Would a brand necessarily upfront go for something like that to sell chessboard? I don't know. It's just interesting, isn't I it? I don't to, know. To music. I okay. believe they will. They're going to. Yeah. Because they trust you. Yeah. Well, because because if you're sincere in your belief as a brand that you want to chase culture or or or, yeah. or what is it? Be at the speed of culture. That's the one. Right? You have to take that risk. And, and I had a very interesting conversation recently with a brand that has a very sort of, you know, Puritan view on how to connect with an audience. And their stated goal to me was we need to forge a relationship with millennials and Gen Z, and we think entertainment is a way to do it. And I said, okay, then make euphoria. And they're like, what? Euphoria? It is drugs and sex and all this other stuff. And it has nothing to do with our core product. I said, right, but it has everything to do with the relationship you want to forge. Now, they're not going to do it today. But 
Some brand will, and they will all of a sudden go from being a old, stale brand to supreme, streetwear, cool, right? Because, and, and here's an interesting anecdote that I think kind of enforce, reinforces the point I'm making. I was, I was, you know, having many conversations early on with the Amazon folks when they were and their visionaries. And I have to say like Amazon has done such a brilliant job. People forget that Amazon is a brand when they think about it as an entertainment platform. That's how well they've done, right? But I asked someone very high up at the company, why are you doing entertainment? When they were asking me for some advice on how to do it. And I said, and they, their response was, and the response was because nobody loves us. We were the biggest company in the world, but nobody loved us. They need us. It's like a, they use the phrase Stockholm syndrome. They have to use yeah. Amazon because it's the best opportunity for them to get what they need for our customers to get what we need. But we believe entertainment is how we create a relationship with them. They were right. Now, I don't think every brand needs to start its own streaming platform like Amazon did. And certainly not every brand can. But I think the takeaway is if you deliver something people love, like Amazon's business, the, the entertainment business is a rounding error on the company's business. It means very little. I mean, thankfully for them and for Hollywood, it's meant a lot more because Jen has done such a brilliant job running that in, into a global operation. But at the, at the core, it's really a loyalty program. Right. And, and that's where, wow. you know, that's where we're really, you know, what we're trying to convince brands to, to replicate. Here I was thinking that it was because they started it because Jeff Bezos wanted an invite to the Oscars. <laughs> yes, that was the rumor. <laughs> I, I mean, look, Jeff is, uh, I think, you know, I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm not saying anything new. I, I think he's, if not one of the greatest visionaries ever, uh, certainly, you know, he, I don't think he does anything by accident and, uh, and, and he, you know, he's, he's, he really saw something. And, and, and for me, it's like that moment in time, if, if I were, if I'm right, I could be a mad scientist, like a, like a chicken saying the sky's falling. Right. Or I'm right. And in 20 years, when people look back on what created what I believe is the way all entertainment is going to be, or most of entertainment is going to be funded, which is by brands. The two tipping points are going to be Jeff starting Amazon Prime and Barbie. And, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Brilliant. We'll remember that. We'll quote you on that. Yeah. I mean, it does make you love them a little bit more for sure. I think as you were talking, I was thinking that. So have we talked enough about what you hate? Michael, yeah. should we move on to <laughs> um, negativity? Let's talk about Yeah, let's move on from that negativity. Although it was very interesting. But let's talk now about what change I think we've talked to some of this throughout, but what is the change that you would create in our industry if you could wave that magic wand? Um I guess I, I sort of have touched on it, but I guess to say it a slightly different way. A CMO is an artist in my view, right? They don't get called that very often. They all want to be, they all, they all want to be known as great creative people, right? 
but for some reason, creative from the lens of a, of a CMO or not from their lens, but when people view CMOs, creative feels like outsourcing and, you know, approving commercials from their creative agencies and all. And it is that, but there's so much more, but, but really CMOs are artists and they're crafting a painting or a sculpture or something or a mural or whatever the medium, you know, for this analogy that I'm beating too much down. But, but ultimately what I'd like to see is for the companies that surround these CMOs to give them more canvas, more space, more time, less fear, right? The, 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 the in and out of a CMO is so toxic for innovation. And, and, and I think CMOs have so much ability to transform brands and see them grow, but they don't have enough agency to see things through often. And, and maybe I'm, I'm generalizing it. Interestingly, you know, as I speak to people, they tell me, oh, what you're doing is so cool. I bet all these new young CMOs are all in on this. And what I found, and they, they are in it conceptually, but they don't, they don't move as fast as the legacy CMOs, the CMOs that spent their whole careers making commercials are the ones that are most bought into what we're doing. And I think the reason is they're the least fearful that their jobs are on the line. It's as simple as that, right? Because when I speak to these younger CMOs that are brilliant, you know, they don't have the ability to, to take this risk yet. Um, so if I could change one thing, it would be give them more time and more money to do this. But I also, if I could, you know, as I want, I want to keep making things happen because I also feel like the more success we can create for brands, the easier it will be for others to take that risk. Yeah. It's a great point. We had, um, was it Erica Wick Sneed from uh, Adidas on a recent episode? And she was saying how the job of the CMO is either one of the greatest in the world, but also one of the shittiest in the world. And I think so much of it comes down to whether they have the room to operate. And if they have the room to operate, it can be incredible, yeah. that canvas. But if they don't, they're the ones that are getting handed the bag or probably getting their marching orders because things haven't gone right when actually they just needed more time, patience, room to, to maneuver. So my challenge on this podcast to all the CEOs in the world that are listening is to give your marketing department more space and time to deliver results. And uh, you have to do things, some things quarterly. You have to do those things because you have core earnings and, 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 but, but at the end of the day, you know, you don't start a new product on a Monday and have it out in the market in three months. Right, you do sometimes years of R and D and invest and trial and error. And what yeah. I'm saying is, what we're creating is a new product inside of your organization that's going to drive sales, bolster revenues, and create brand loyalty. Which also, by the way, creates a good investor relationship for those companies that need to have a relationship with the people that buy stocks. I love this call to arms. They need to operate at two two speeds, kind of is what you're saying, right? 
Well, they've earned every other aspect of these businesses that way, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. there's there's the core products, and then they're like, we're going to do R&D on 10 new SKUs, and they take two or three years, and some products fail, and some succeed, and then they invest a lot of money. I mean, nothing happens fast in the product side. Marketing needs to happen fast. But, I, but, but if you view marketing as also a product, because we are now creating something, that is to use your create part of our conversation. Um, we're now creating something that is an asset that can also drive opportunity for your company. Well, think of that like you would think of launching a new beer or a new soda product. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't view the well, marketing for that could be viewed as a as a cost center, right? But this is this is truly becoming an investment the same way a, a new line of beer would. Um Brilliant, Michael. We're going to try something new today to round off the episode, and we're going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Just we've, this has all been about work and business. It's all been quite serious, so we wanted to get a bit of an insight okay, good. Um, into you, but nothing too <laughs> nothing too <laughs> deep. I, and meaningful. I, I am. I like to, to have fun. So, Got great. It. Okay. Yeah, it's been fun. It's just been a, fun. Just a few questions to to round out things. First of all, tell us about a, a piece of advertising or a brand campaign that you you loved, whether it's a recent one. Um, something you guys have worked on, or maybe something that's just a famous bit of bit of advertising. Tell us what what, what you've loved. Well, listen, I've loved so many, and and in, you know, I spent 15 years at Anonymous Content. We made you know hundreds, if not thousands, of commercials. Um, and I think the one that that I was most proud of, uh, the and and I think the one that I love the most still is you know the Thank You Mom campaign for PNG, which just that that Inarichi directed, and you know that was just very 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 moving for me. Um, you know, there's there's great stuff being done, right? There's there's still brilliant work, and and what I'm saying is not meant to undermine. I know this is supposed to be quick fire, but like, you know, creative agencies do great work. It's just this is a portfolio. You have to reach the audience in many ways. So, um, yeah, I, I would. But to to answer your question, thank you, thank mom. you, mom. Thank you, mom. Yeah, love that. Next question then. Um, what are a couple of books that you recommend to people to read, whether it be fiction, whether it be business? Um, what, are, what are a couple of books that you think any everyone should absolutely read? Well, I'll just tell you the one because this is, and I read a lot of books. Um, the best book I've read in terms of actually changing my life is The One Thing by Gary Keller. Um, have not read it that. It is no, tell more, please. extraordinary primer on how to achieve success, both in business and in relationships and in and in health and everything. So yeah, yeah, the one thing. Okay. The one thing. Downloading that to it's my Audible great. account. Yeah, straight onto Amazon. Very soon. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, last one then. If you could rewind the clock, what advice would you give to your younger self? entering the the start of your career as i sit here now the first thing i would do is i would rewind the last hour and speak less so uh apologies if i if i ranted not at all that's the whole point not at all it's gold it's brilliant i think the the one thing that i learned too late was to really trust my instincts uh, and there are a couple pivotal moments in my career that I let other people tell me I was wrong about that I was definitely not wrong about. 
uh, I've been wrong about a lot of things. So, but, but I think, I think, especially for those of us that like are not uncomfortable in uncomfortable situations, like disruption, things that, that require disruption. Um, I think every, the amount of people who have told me I'm crazy doing what I'm doing exceeds the amount of people who have told me I'm, you know, smart, uh, but it's working. Right. And so I think the, I, I would, I would go back and tell a younger version of myself, uh, just stay out of the sun. It's not good for your skin. And then I would say, trust your gut, even when sometimes you're proven wrong. Yeah, stick with it. Look after your gut, health-wise, and trust Look your gut your instinctually. Gut. That's, yeah, you should write that book. Fantastic. Thank you Brilliant so much. Advice. This has been Thank amazing. You, we really appreciate you joining us. Um, and uh, yeah, best of luck in You're very fun changing here. the industry. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you.